What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, you know what? It's a new month. Is it? Yeah, it is. And I'm thinking to myself that we should probably have something like a month called Support Our Supporters. Support Our Supporters? Support Our Supporters. We've got some people who support our show. Yeah. And I want to show them some love. Okay. Yeah. So we've got someone who is regularly supporting our show, who's the industry buffet himself, Jason mm-hmm. Furman mm-hmm. from Einswick Dog Quip. Einswick Dog Quip. Einswick. Yeah. I know you're a fan of Jason's equipment. You know what? Sometimes I get these ideas in my head. Mm-hmm. Let's go I'm with like, that. Jason, with I've got this idea for a tug and I want it to be this big and this round and made of leather. Yep. You got one? He goes, no, that doesn't exist, you idiot, but I can get it made. I go, do it, sir. He's pretty good like that, the old buffet, isn't he? Yeah. We should get Teespring. The buffet. The <laughs> Teespring merch made up. <laughs> Support the buffet. Support the buff. Yeah. But we've got people in other parts of the world that are Yeah, you know who's show? not a buffet? Tell me. Mac Lapointe. Mac Lapointe is French for Mark. For not a buffet. Yeah, for not a buffet. And he is from? Canine Dynamics. Canine Dynamics. In Canada. Yep. Please don't slow this one down. <laughs> <laughs> so if I were in North America, that's where I'd be getting my, yeah. my working dog equipment from. He's got a great array of gear as well. He does. Yeah. Yep. And he's a very generous guy. Yeah. Mm. You know who else is a supporter of the show? That would have to be Kindred Canine. Mm. Mel Benware. Our good friend Mel Benware. She has got to be one of the best travel to your home, train the dog in your home dog trainers. Absolutely. In the area that she's in, which Richmond, is- Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> or Ashland, Virginia. She yeah. comes from Ashland, Virginia, but she services all the area around there. She's been a great support for the show and also a great support for the International Association of Canine Professionals. That's right. We are proud members of as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're in Australia and you need dog equipment- mm-hmm. Jason Furman. Einswick Dog, dog Quip. Yep. Einswick Dog Quip. Einswick. If you're in North America, you yep. need working dog equipment, Mark Point. <laughs> Canine Dynamics. <laughs> and if you're in Ashland, Virginia, yep. or Richmond, Virginia. Yep. In that general area. Yep. And you need pet dog training. Melanie Benway. Melanie Benway. Kindred Canine. Kindred Canine. Yep. That's it. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And today, joining us on the line from Colorado. I nearly said Florida. We, did, did. we organized this. <laughs> I know. From Colorado <laughs> is Amy Sadler. Amy, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a huge thrill to be here with you guys. Thank you. And it's an absolute pleasure for us as well, Amy. And it's been a long time coming, considering that we spoke about this at conference in Colorado. I think we were queuing up for food and we met each other for the first time officially. Been following your work for quite some time. You did a presentation in Florida at Tampa one year that I was there and put a video up of you and your organization doing all the great work that you're doing. And my jaw hit the ground and I went home 
and your PDF that you put out, I showed it to my staff and said, you need to see what this lady's doing. It's absolutely incredible. As I said, long time coming that we really wanted to get you on the show and talk about you and what you do. Well, you actually, yeah, we talked about it briefly before and it has been a while. And I, when I, I sent you that message the other day to compliment you on that episode. And I thought when you turned around and said, let's get you on the show, it was like, oh, are you serious? It was very exciting. Really, <laughs> I do love your show. And I think that I don't only just love your show about dog training stuff. I just think that you are a very intelligent, heartfelt people. And I really enjoy listening to perspective above and beyond just dogs. Well, thank mm, you. That's thank you a, very much. Yeah, that's a wonderful compliment. To thank get. you for those lies. I appreciate those. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, let's get on to you. Yes. So, dogs playing for life. Let's talk about it because I saw that same presentation. Mm. It was at St. Pete's Beach. And I, you know, it was my first time going to ISCP conference. And you were one of the big time speakers, right? Like you had the big three hour block that everyone was in there the for. The keynotes. Yeah. And it was. It was overwhelming. It was a huge thing. And to see the numbers and the stats Mm. of what you guys are involved in all around the country. Ultimately, we want to talk about the whole business where it's at now. But we, you know, if you listen to the show, you know, we like to hear backstories, right? So how has it come to be that we're having this conversation? Where did it start for you? How did you get into dogs? Yep. It's actually really a crazy story. You know, I was doing private dog training and I showed up at a client's house in Southampton, New York. No, no, no. Further back. How did yeah, how did you get into dog training? How did I get into dog training? Mm, yeah. Oh, well, I literally I've had the privilege of working with animals professionally since I was nineteen. Okay. And I just I just responded to somebody who was talking, asked that question on Facebook, and my answer is always, "How did I get into dog training? I shoveled a lot of shit for free." <laughs> yeah. So in other words, I think I'm of that generation where uh, I was an apprentice. You know, I just really tried to get in close with amazing trainers. And originally that was with exotic animals. That's where I started. Technically with marine mammals first, then with exotics and then in film work. And dog training, worked with uh, trained horses for a while, was raised with horses. So it just was always working with animals professionally. And dog training was really a side gig. You know, I was working horses at the LA Equestrian Center and I needed to make some extra money. And I always swore I was not going to do private dog training because it was the people, not the dogs and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But I started working with, I was referred to people and started working. That's how I got involved as a professional dog trainer. That's how that started. But how I ended up as a, you know, a rescue and shelter trainer. That's, that was many, many, many years later. Okay. So your initial training, like where did you get that from? So you said that you were dealing with marine mammals. So you're working at a facility at a zoo or something that had in-house training. Yeah, I actually was uh, an apprentice to the dolphin and sea lion trainer at Magic Mountain in California. Cool. That's where that started. And then they had they had a little wild animal show, like educational show that they had it in-house, but they would we'd also bounce around and go to schools. They had an opening and that was an official job, not just, I actually had quit my office job to be an apprentice to the marine mammal trainer and then worked at the Marie Calendars across the street waitressing so right. that I could do that. Then the paying animal job came up and bounced into that. And then it's a whole you know, then on to movie work. And that was the area for all of that. There were a lot of studio trainers out there. So I just ended up trying to apprentice with as many people as possible and just bounced my way around. It's really interesting because, you know, what I would sort of, when I think of you at the moment, I think of behavior modification and lifestyle type stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, because you're dealing in rescue, that sort of thing. Whereas your background then being marine mammals is really very Skinnerian operant conditioning, very like behavior focused rather than lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. And also just the, when you're working with marine mammals, you know, that 
you don't have the physicality that we can have with dogs or mm-hmm. that we do have with horses, right? And so, and I've heard so many of your podcasts that really touch on it in some way, shape, or form about context. And to me, the context of training is really the kicker. And I, you know, I could kiss your feet over and over again for many of the things that you <laughs> talk about. And one is that I don't think anybody's bringing, you know, reinventing the wheel here. We're all working off of the same platform. And sometimes people are really striving to do something like earth shattering. And I don't know what that's going to take. I think we're all functioning off of the same platform. But I think what's really interesting and what happened to me is thinking that I understood all of these ways to train with all these different species and then being thrown into the environment of dogs in kennels in a shelter that were deprived and frustrated and stressed and how I thought I had all these systems down and now you put it in this context and you're fucked. And I can say that on your show, which is so- <laughs> anyway, you know, it was just a whole different ball game. It's like, so how do I repurpose this to work here? Because, you know, everything that most of us hang our hat on, you know, you have to have relationship, you have to start teaching in low stress environments, like on and on and on and on. That all goes out the window once you're in a kennel with, you know, all these dogs yelling and screaming and facing each other. Mm. So, you know, the things you think work perfectly don't always work perfectly. I know this is probably a, a while back, but with say marine mammals, how much of their body language can you read? You know, because like most of it is behaviors because you're putting on a show, you need them to do particular things and you need the dolphin to hit the ball. All right. And you know, that's a very operant process. You teach that it's positive reinforcement. You bring it on and he lives in a pool. So it's not a real environment and you, and, and you maybe don't have a great relationship or, or do you, I don't know, but that's what I kind of am, am interested in the transition from that work to dog training where, you know, I think that most humans can intuitively read a dog's body language. I can see what a scared dog looks like. His tail tucks, his ears go down, that kind of stuff. But I don't know what can you see in a marine mammal? What can you see in a dolphin that tells you about his state of mind? And therefore, how important is that to the training? And was there a learning curve when you started in dogs that then was like, hey, this is a new factor that I have to take into account is like, I, I, of course I can train this dog to go touch the ball. Like I can train the dolphin, but I can see this dog's not happy. Does that mm-hmm. play a role in it? Well, it's interesting. I was raised with, I was raised on a farm. So I was raised around dogs and horses and there was a lot of training going on. We were doing hunter jumpers and my mom actually had German shepherds that were protection dogs. I didn't, wasn't involved in it much then. So but I was always around animals. And it, it's funny, you say that most people can read a dog. I don't. Yeah, I think that's I mean, generous. to an extent, right? Like <laughs> to, there is an intuitive nature. Right? Mm. And I don't want to overrepresent myself. I had the privilege of being an apprentice to a dolphin and sea lion trainer, but I was never the primary trainer. I was okay. a baby in that. And I had the privilege of being around it. So I was never the a lead trainer. I wasn't even a paid trainer. So I was getting to learn by observation and I was allowed to handle them and get in the water with them, but I was really there just trying to be a sponge mostly, mm-hmm. but I learned more about reading them. And it's just like any species that you work with, you you do have to know something about the species. And she made me go do my studying and then you've got to be a good observer. I don't care what animal you're working with. And so that, so I think that that was all the same. And then when I, you know, moving into dog training, I felt like, yes, it was much easier and I could automatically read dogs just to back up, I have to tell you, I had the privilege of working with many, many different species. And if I had my way, would have loved to have been able to work with elephants more. I only was in the periphery of phenomenal elephant trainers and also the all of the ape, the great apes and everything. That, that was amazing to me. Mm-hmm. But I got to tell you, big cats, when I was around them, 
did not feel like I had the big cat juju. And really? a couple of times I was just there as a, a backup. And I'm thinking, wow, if this goes south, I don't feel like I get it with them the same. So it uh-huh. is interesting that some species more than others, yeah, that feels intuitive to me. I feel like I could be one of you or with you and, and others you don't. It's just mm. how they strike you. But don't you feel that way about dogs too sometimes? Well, totally. I, many years ago, you know, my wife's a tattooist and she tattoos. One zookeeper came and got a tattoo and then told his friends. And so before too long, she's tattooing a bunch of zookeepers, right? So here at Taronga Zoo, it's this huge, beautiful zoo here in Sydney. We had a kind of a bunch of sort of hookups, behind the scene hookups, because we knew a lot of the zookeepers. And this was before, I can remember this one time when I was still in the army, we were in with the reptiles, in with the snakes, right? Mm-hmm. And- they were pulling out from you know, where they milk the snakes, not the snakes that are on display, but the ones where they you know make mm. anti-venom from. And the handler, he opened the little cage and shut it immediately and said, oh, he's not coming out today. And mm. like uh, he could read the snake, mm. right? Like he knew that snake had intent to bite him. And he said, no, like mm. you'll not stay there. And, you know, I know nothing about <laughs> snakes other than that I am healthily scared of them. And I was amazed by that he could read the body language of the snake when that was nothing obvious to me. There was nothing right. in that that it could see it. But in the same way, I think that like I have, when I was in the army then, there were dogs when I would go in to clean their kennel and I'd be like, oh, no, <laughs> not today, <laughs> right? right? Like, you know, it's a triple stage kennel. And I was like, normally we clean it with them in there and they sort of, you know, poke you and annoy you while you clean the kennel. And I remember a couple of times with a couple of really hard dogs that we had there or dangerous dogs that I'd open the crate and the kennel and be like, oh, no, nah, you're getting locked in your bed today. Today today is different for you than yesterday. And it's a really mm-hmm. subtle thing, but he could read that in a snake. And I just wonder, you know, like in other animals, how readable that is. Yeah, interesting conversation, this one, because I remember once I was diving in Fiji Every time I'm over there, I always say to the guide, can you take me to places where there's sharks so I can go and follow them and, you know, take pictures of them and so forth. And he said, yeah, yeah, we'll go to this little lagoon. There's always sharks hanging around the bottom there. And there were a couple of sharks, like they were resting on the bottom and I'd, you know, I'd swim over towards them and they'd sort of scurry away. They were reef sharks, the species. And I remember there were like a school of them sort of hanging together and I was following them along and I had my GoPro out and I was filming them and watching them and observing from a distance. And one of the sharks suddenly started behaving differently than all the other ones. And my guide grabbed me by the fin and he was indicating to me underwater to stop doing what I was doing and to come back. When I got back on the boat, I said, was I upsetting that shark? And he said, yes. And I said, how do you know? And he said, I could tell by the way the shark was like moving in the water, like he said, if you'd noticed it was going left and right really quickly where the other ones were just cruising. And I said, yeah, mm-hmm. I did. I did see that. I actually got it on film too. And he said, well, that is like a threat from the shark to say, I don't enjoy this and I'm not happy about what you're doing. And had I not have been with him, I would have just thought this is just a shark in its environment. But he said, mm-hmm. if you kept pushing that shark, there's a good chance that it might have turned and retaliated. So interesting, you know, like I got to observe a species in its natural environment and see something that I normally would not pay attention to. But now, you know, like on other adventures I've been where I've been on shark feeds and everything, and I've been sitting there watching people feeding sharks. I can see the ones that are comfortable and the ones that aren't comfortable. I guess if you spend enough time in that environment, you start to see things that other people take for granted because I was one of sure. those people. Mm. Do you guys remember the, the the whole leopard seal, the National Geographic leopard seal shoot? Have you seen that? No. Don't look at me like you've not seen that. I don't no. think so. As soon as as soon as we're finished with this, you have to go online and look up, you know, National Geographic leopard seal, and then and then we'll just talk about it again another time. But okay. um, <laughs> that is one of the most dynamic, and again, being in the natural environment, you've got to go check it out. 
Okay. It's amazing. Is that the one, Amy, where the, the seals are biting the guys on the tank and they're sort of playing one minute and then they're grabbing them by the masks? Because I did see one leopard seal one where the, the, they got a little frisky and a little out of control when they were down there with them. Now, I, I hope that I'm thinking leopard seal. They're huge, right? Leopard seal, do I have the yeah. right species? Yeah. They're yeah. huge. Yeah. No, this one is in particular, the le- say the look up leopard seal feeding the photographer fish. Okay. But this one leopard seal, they had over multiple days, we're building a, re- a relationship and this leopard seal was trying to get him to eat. It. You've just got to check it out. All right. And then you're going to talk about it. Mark my words, you'll talk about it on one of your shows. But, like my octopus I mean, teacher. <laughs> oh, I got it. I just listened to that one. And I'm telling you now I don't want to watch it because now I don't want to watch when the shark goes after the octopus, but I want to see all the rest of it, but I want to not watch that part. Watch it. I would watch probably- it. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's, it is traumatic, but it's definitely worth a watch. Worth it? Yeah. I mean, after, after, um, we got into some trouble over the spoilers. In that yes, we did. <laughs> did you? Sorry to bring that up again then. Um, um, I'm just black, blackfish. Oh yeah. Blackfish. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just lo- and you know, as soon as that came out, I picked up the phone and called Joel Silverman right away and just said, "Dude, you got to tell me, tell me the behind the scenes real shit about this. I mean, mm. what's the deal?" But uh, you know, I've known Joel forever, mm. ever. Have you guys had him on your show? No, we no. haven't. No. Oh, I've known him forever because when I was working with exotics in film, before I did that, I was an American Humane officer, and so I used to go on the set to monitor him, which was a joke. Right. I just got to hang out with him, but yep. I was there to make sure he was treating. You know, not just him, but the trainers. And I was set on his set a bunch of times, but that's how I met Joel originally way back when. Well, that's right. another like little part to your story. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I'm old. But, <laughs> I wasn't saying that. <laughs> to your point, Pat, though, I've, um, I just have that stomach flip thing. I, I don't mm. know if you guys, I just describe it as a stomach flip when I am approaching an animal and I just get that, that mm. wonky feeling. Something's not and, right. Yeah, I, you know, I had done, we've worked with, we've done 288 shelters by going to them and doing playgroup seminars. I remember the first time that I did one, and I think in my, and this was, how many years ago is this? Three or four years ago. And I was on the ground with one of the, the one of the largest in the country. And those, they did not have an enrichment program. It was interesting. It started out, we were funded by the ASPCA and it started out as, as research because they did not have enrichment programming for their dogs at the time. There wasn't a dog walking program or anything, highest volume in the country. And they wanted at one of the campuses to film the dogs in the kennels beforehand for about 30 days, then have us come in and and get all the dogs out of the kennels and rotate them through play groups and then just see what they were like in the kennels before. And then after it was just to just basically study what is the impact of just adding a playgroup program if you add nothing else. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, it got the study part of it because there is uh, something that got bunked up. Like one of their buildings got shut down, so it changed the population. So from a research perspective, it was out the window. But as a result of being sent on the ground to do that, they ended up asking us to stay and teaching them how to run playgroups. And it's great because if the largest one in the country can do it, anybody can do it, right? Yeah. That's but it. when I showed up there in my career, I think before that there were maybe five dogs in my career that I didn't feel like I could get out of the kennel safely. And at that shelter, that first day, there was three dogs that I didn't go in with because of the circumstances that those dogs were in and how frenzied they were. Now we ended, I can't even remember. I think all three of them ended up coming out, but it was just so impactful to me that I'd spent all these years going with hundreds of, I mean, probably thousands of dogs that I've been in and out of and sometimes had that feeling like, Oh no, I'm not going in with you today. 
but it had been so rare. And then at this one location, because they were so distressed in that circumstance, that there were three. So Mm. I thought that was pretty telling. And that's really Mm. to the core of why we do what we do is just the quality of life thing for shelter dogs, you know. I want to tell a story and then we're going to go to, we got to go back and get to how you got into doing mm, this, right? Definitely. But talking about being in a kennel with dogs, we had this dog in the army, right? His name was Breston. Breston. Was, yeah. He was a lot of dog, mm. right? And he was not a dog that liked to be told what to do. He had a very good handler and they, like he certified, he was all very good, but he was one of those Mallies, you know, those ones with the like eyes that bulge out of their head and the big forehead, like- mm-hmm. Like, I'm not sure of his bloodline, but super powerful dog and did not like to be bossed around, right? And he had torn up a couple of handlers and he was a lot of dog. So I always got along with him, but I never asked him to do anything, mm. right? Like, I'd take him out if, if his handler was away, I'd take him out and he'd just be on the flexi. I'd let him have his 15 minutes, you know, out doing his own thing. And then I would just be like, hey, and I'd have food and I'd casually put him away. We always got on fine. So one day I'm cleaning his kennel and he was one of those finger painters, right? Like he would just paint shit all over the walls. <laughs> like I, like and, Remy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What he's here, right? Yeah. So Breston's on his bed and I'm cleaning turds off of the wall. I've got the pressure washer, right? And I looked back at him and gave him this look like, ugh, like you're so gross. And that was it. He was like, fuck you. You don't look at me like that and came at me. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, while we're in mm. the ghetto, right? Yeah. So I'm in a panic, turn the pressure washer onto him and sort of like, pr- like sort of push him out of the way. Only like I've been hosing turds off the walls, right? So now there's like slippery turds and shit everywhere as me and Breston are scrambling around on the floor trying to get out of the kennel. Damn. <laughs> yeah. He, he was intent on killing me. I just got out in time. Yep. And then he like, I'm covered in shit and water and I barely get out of the kennel in time. And he just stops dead. Doesn't even bark at me. Just like, and that's how things go, Pat. Right? <laughs> don't don't critique my art, you yeah. asshole. So sometimes, you know, you're in the kennel and things can change. <laughs> All right. Yeah. That's my Preston story. Hey, well, I think he was very legit to get ticked at you for <laughs> criticizing his bathroom habits. Yeah. In a very unnatural situation. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and now after sliming around in it yourself, you know how he feels. Exactly. Exactly. Right. He, he just wanted me to get a taste for it. Yeah. All right. So you're working as a dog trainer. How, mm-hmm. what's the next step? How is it that you came to be involved in rescue so heavily in these play groups with rescue? Well, one of my clients, I showed up at her house one day. She had two Jack Russells that were pretty frequently trying to kill each other. And just to preface this is that I was doing um, board and train in my home environment, like the real life environment with the kids. You know, that was the thing that my, my advertisement was, is, you know, the kids were crawling around on the floor and the dog is, there's other dogs and we're living the real life. Your dog is not coming to a kennel environment when they came to training with me. So that was my kind of big advertisement. And I was used to working with dogs in groups. I was always really intuitively and comfortable naturally with dogs and groups. I was raised on that farm. We had 17 dogs at a time on the farm. My mom would rescue dogs all the time. It just was comfortable for me. And for some people, that's not the case. Mm. Like I've learned from some amazing world-class trainers that I think are just the worst with dog-to-dog interactions. I mean, they just like, go sit down. You can't do this, but I'll learn everything else from you. But this was very comfortable for me. So my client, I show up at her house one day and she says, you know what? The dog's been doing great. And so I want to load you up in the car. I walk dogs down at our local shelter, the Southampton Animal Shelter. And I would like to pay for your time to just go and try to help the dogs there. And I was like, oh, God, no, because I wanted to help shelter dogs. And I did. I would take dogs in as like a, I would foster behaviorally challenged dogs for rescues and everything mm-hmm. and work with them and place them from my home. But I was so distressed when I saw dogs in kennels that I never wanted to go into the shelter. I would just cry. I was like a big weenie. 
And so I, but this was my client. So, you know, of course I, what am I going to say to her? No, thank you. I'm not going to go do that. So of course I went to do it with her. And I also have a very all or nothing type mentality. And so she got me hooked once I was there and I was walking the dogs with her. It was very small. It was a dilapidated facility at that time. There's about 30 something dogs. And literally how this started is because I had 30 something dogs that were all going nuts. They had a yard in the back and I felt like, you know, I was going in with treats and everything, originally doing all of my wonderful dog training things that worked so beautifully for me under normal circumstances. The dogs were like, you know, screw that. That's not what I want. Just get me the fuck out of here, you know? And so I thought, let me just ask if they'll let me let them play together. And the whole purpose was let, let, let's just get their yayas out first, you know, satiate them at some mm. level, because then I could identify when the dogs came back into the kennel, which ones could kind of cope and which ones were still struggling and difficult to handle. And then I knew those were the ones that I would focus some training on because it made me feel terrible to think, oh, I'm going to show up for two hours and work three or four dogs and leave the other ones like this. Mm-hmm. Like, I just couldn't stomach it. So really that's where this, this whole thing it really came from. It's just like I couldn't, it was just a quality of life thing. I didn't start out to save lives at all. I really started out just no matter what their outcome is, this life can't suck this much. Okay. So your first day at the shelter, that one with that, that lady, she's bought your time, doesn't need to use herself, takes you down to the shelter and says, Hey, help a dog, help some dogs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that you immediately use play to triage who yes. was then worth investing the, the remaining couple of hours you have there into actual training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's really how it started. And she said, whenever you have a hole in your schedule, I will pay for you your regular rate. And at that time, I got to tell you that was in the Hamptons in New York. I was, it was 150 out there, 200 an hour in New York at that time. Mm-hmm. Right. And so she was paying me my regular rate to go and work the shelter dogs. And then what ended up happening is, over time, I ended up just working for her. So I ended up being basically like a donated employee to the shelter. So I was, she was the one that paid me, but I worked there full time. It just became our passion. And to this, there's a crazy small world story that I knew her when I was a child that we discovered later on, but she and I, she's like a mother to me. And I'm, uh, I feel like I owe that human being my life Mm. way, but anyway, that's all cool. That's going to make me cry. But, and she and I are still very close, but that, that all started. That was in 1998. Wow. When that happened. And I have been working with shelter dogs exclusively, literally since then. It's just been this. And how I ended up in Colorado and working with the Longmont Humane Society was after I kind of installed my version of canine programming for shelter dogs at the Southampton shelter. And we saw they were saving about 70 plus percent of their dogs at that time. And by us implementing that programming. And then there's other things like they did upgrade the shelter, but the the playgroup program was pretty critical and they were up to maintaining a 90% for their dogs in relatively short order and it sustained, it maintained itself. She then ended up asking if I was willing to relocate to Colorado and try again to install our programming at the Longmont Humane Society. So they were both open admission shelters. They weren't pre-screening dogs before they came in. They would take anything mm-hmm. so they could end up with medical cases, with behavior cases. Both of those shelters were that kind of a shelter. Both of them were at about the 70% rate when we showed up. And then their canine rates from our programming went up to above 90% at that one too. Mm. First shelter was only about 1,000 animals a year. The second shelter was about 4,500 animals a year. So we were basically demonstrating that our programming to scale was working as well. Mm -hmm. And then it was from my work at the Longmont Humane Society that people were interested in how are you guys increasing your, it was live release rate at that time for your dogs. And we really talked about the playgroups and the enrichment programming being 
the primary focus. And that's when I think it was 2010 that Brian Kilcommons was also a very old state this dating myself. Uh, Brian Kilcommons was, he had mentored me for years and he knew that I was doing this playgroup stuff and he had a volunteer training program over in Florida. And he was the one that said, you've got to figure out how to teach other shelters, how to do this. So that's how the playgroup seminars started hitting the road. Mm. That so- was in 2010. I'm very interested in understanding like how you decided to do that. Like why did you know or how did you know that play uh, and these play groups would radically alter the the dogs in the shelter? Because it looks like now having, you know, spoken to all the people like yourself and, you know, Jay Jack's a good friend and that's a big part of it. And, and even right now I'm doing Ivan Balabanov's course and that's, you know, heavily, it's lots of play, right? So it mm-hmm. seems like now, you know, play is obvious, right? And everybody's like, oh, you got to play with these dogs. It's really important. We understand that. But in mm-hmm. the same way, Pat Nolan was the first person to use a scent tube and now it's just a scent tube, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. what you do, right? But someone did that first. This is early days. How did you know that play was going to be that important? What was it that drove you to do that? Why did you decide I'm going to let these dogs play and then I'm going to see how that affects them and then try and train them? Laziness. <laughs> Dead serious. It was an efficiency issue. Mm. Because it was like, I have this amount of time and to give these dogs actual quality of time to expend the energy that they need so that they can concentrate and even pay attention to these other lessons that I want to teach them that have no, you know, obedience has no intrinsic value for the dogs, right? Mm -hmm. What dog wants to come out of a kennel when it's going nuts and spinning and be taken out on a six feet foot leash and taught to walk in a, in a position by your side? Why is that enriching to a dog? We have to, we have to manufacture that, but it's not intrinsically happy or healthy for the dogs by itself. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so to me, literally it was, how can I attend to as many dogs as possible? And because I was also very comfortable with it, it was just the obvious natural way to go. Um, and it made my trying to teach the basics in that kind of adverse condition. It just made my work easier. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm trying to be funny, but it's really true. It was, wasn't really out of laziness. And interestingly, I want to brag about Lexi, who is our director at the Canine Center in Florida, she graduated. She was in Ivan's first class. So okay. She's graduated from this course, which is she's amazing. And we've had J-Jack down a bunch of times. And J-Jack helped us get over the hump with a, a bunch of the dogs that we were working with. But that play is human and dog interactive play. Yep. It's very different than the dog-to-dog play and how, you're, and how to utilize that. Mm-hmm. And I think that some of the stuff that we would do, I remember the first time I've got a great video of Jay when he showed up. And I had a, a number of the fight bus dogs that were in playing together and we had worked hard to get there. Believe me, it wasn't an, Oh, look, it's just so easy. And if you know Jay well, and you watch this video, he's kind of wringing his hands. And I said, Hey, so what do you think about this? And I had just literally really met him. And now looking back on that video, he's going, this is psycho. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But he was great in the video. He's like, and he's literally wringing his hands like, no, this is, it's amazing that these dogs are playing like this, but it's pretty funny. Yeah, dog-to-dog stuff is different. Yeah, yeah. And so your foundation in that was really developed yourself, right? There was no one to learn that from? Because you're saying this started in 98, right? So there was nobody that – there wasn't a seminar you could go to to learn, okay, how do I get dogs to play better? Like, And socialization, sort of large field stuff was probably around Mm -hmm. then. Dick Russell, he was – I remember being so thrilled because Dick Russell was so reinforcing to me when I went to IECP way back when – and he um, taught his open field socialization. This was before Chad was involved in it or anything. Chad learned from Dick, right? Mm-hmm. 
And I remember being so thrilled that, oh, because it was very reinforcing. I will never claim that I did not invent playgroups or create this at all. Just like you say, we're not create. We're just deciding what pieces are important and how we want to impart the knowledge that feels good to us and is effective for us, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't invent playgroups. There were tons of people like me that were comfortable and intuitively would let dogs play together. But more often than not, people were afraid, especially with kennel dogs and strange dogs mm. and but Dick Russell, of course, he was like the founding father of all of the open field socialization. And so of course, I was supportive of what he was doing. And it, and it he made me feel like I was okay in what I was doing. Sure. But right. no, I didn't learn it from someone in particular. I've bumbled along and then created and, a curriculum based on like, ah, now I've got to teach somebody what I'm doing. How the freak do I teach someone why I select that dog to come in, but this dog can't right now? When you've got to get yeah. into all of those logistics, you can't break it down like a training curriculum. Mm-hmm. because it's fluid. You can't, you're not controlling what the dogs are doing all the time. And to me, one thing that's making me insane, which is why I loved that podcast that you guys did was there's a whole faction of folks like the playgroup train is down the tracks in the animal welfare world. Now, I don't think it will be part of the norm. I'll die a happy woman. If getting dogs out into playgroups or giving them an opportunity to show you if it's a value to them, mm-hmm that that will become as normal and sheltering as yeah, feeding, cleaning. And yes, you have to offer them out of kennel enrichment every day. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's a bunch of groups that are really promoting, introducing dogs. And all I can say is it's so micromanaging. All I can say is it feels like human beings inserting and projecting ourselves and our psychology onto dogs. And who the hell do we think we are? Just get out of their way and allow them to be dogs together. I, I bet you they're a lot better at that than we are. So why do we think that we can tell them how to be a dog interacting with another dog? Mm. And so really what we're trying to teach people is being able to identify that's problematic. That's not problematic. Let them do their thing. Fun, interesting ahead, point, um, Amy, because I've got a, a girl that works for us at the moment in one of our resorts, and she's just brilliant with socialization. And you know she does all our doggy daycare. Well, not all our mm-hmm. doggy daycare, but she runs our largest doggy daycare, a girl called Maddie. And I was watching her working with some dogs the other day and she's very much of that don't over manage the dogs, like let them play. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I've, I've also watched clients come in and have the opinion that their dog is right for daycare where I've learned it from when I've been over in the States and I've listened to people like yourself and other people who have said some dogs just don't really like it. They don't want to be involved in those daycare yeah. environments. And, you know, like I've been part of a conversation where I've sat down with people and said, your dog is not happy about being in a daycare environment. And I've said, oh, yes, he is. He's very social. And I said, I think you want the dog to be very social. Like that's important to you, but it's not to the dog. Like the dog is not enjoying being in Mm -hmm. the large group socialization. Your dog enjoys being with you and not with these other dogs. And they're saying, oh, yeah, but somebody else told me it's very important for my dog to play. And I said, yeah, but again, it's like that poor observation I had with that shark. That shark didn't like me following it. It wasn't happy about what was going on in that environment. And people, you know, they're either micromanaging too much in these um, large socialization fields where they're just projecting too much themselves or they're not doing enough. You know, there doesn't Mm -hmm. seem to be a happy medium at some times where they're saying, yeah, these 15 dogs over here, they're fine. 
these two dogs, they're not enjoying being with these 15 mm-hmm. dogs. You know, maybe they will pick their own group of dogs that they're happy with, mm-hmm. you know, dogs that leave them alone and sort of dogs that are happy to wander around in the field and do their own thing. And I have seen that before where people have said, no, no, these dogs don't suit socialization classes or large field social or habitual groups or whatever you're trying to do with the dogs. But there are courses for horses, so they say. You know, some dogs, they will function nicely in groups as long as the other dogs are just happy to do their thing and not get in their face. So you are absolutely right. And I think sometimes people need to close their mouth sometimes and open their eyes and ears and just look and watch what's going on around them to pay particular attention to, to what's happening in the environment and then also make good judgment calls based on that. Well, and I think context, again, is a huge thing. So when you're working with a client's dog and you're observing clearly, like this dog is not interested in this, this dog is happy in its life with you. So mm. it doesn't have to play with other dogs. In a shelter environment, when we're doing play groups, one of the big things that we're trying to teach people is when dogs do come out and they're stressed, right? Yep. We talk about teach the difference between stress and distress, right? From an adaptive perspective. And when you've kind of blown that threshold, well, now this learning is not beneficial. Now you're creating a worse situation mm. for the dog. But it's true that for a lot of shelter dogs, if they first come out to play groups, some of them look pretty uncomfortable. The key is matching them with dogs that have the right energy and the right play style. Bingo. That's really the key mm. because when you give, you stand back and allow them to be with dogs that are appropriate for them, so many of them come out of their shell. And if we judge them from that first interaction, you would say, oh, no, no, this is too much. Fearful dogs, a lot of people want to coddle and overprotect fearful dogs, and then they don't have any exposure. And so how, how would they naturally learn if they don't have exposure, if their threshold's they're not going to expand their thresholds without exposure, Mm. right? And so, and then using all the things that we know to ease into it. But again, you take a fearful dog. I I think about normal behavior, right? And you have outliers, right? I mean, if you have an extremely fearful dog or an extremely aggressive dog, right? That's the opposite ends of the spectrum. And you, you have a pack or a group of dogs that are behaving within normal range of behavior. And you take an outlier and expose them to a group of animals of their own species behaving normally what's most likely going to happen is the normal dog going to start to adapt and become more behave more like the rest of the group that is behaving normally, or all the normal ones going to start out behaving like the outlier. So it's just a matter of using kind of natural common sense, just Mm. expose them to normal, healthy, appropriate canine interactive behavior. And you will probably learn that you're safe and okay. And you will start to probably interact in a normal social way for a canine. Mm. There's so many layers to that as well. Like I think, take my own dogs, for example, right? I use them as examples a lot in a lot of things, but it's because I know them so intimately. And so Valerie, my Springer Spaniel, most people look at her and say she's not social. Like, so she's not aggressive or fearful. She just doesn't enjoy the company of other dogs. She doesn't spend a lot of time with them, right? It's not, she doesn't play. But We with call cert- them tolerant. Tolerant, like We call a dog right? like that tolerant. You can be around dogs, but they're not. Yeah, she doesn't want to play. But Valerie's got a party in her head 24-7. Well, but here's the thing. There's (laughs) certain dogs. It's taken me a long time to understand what's actually going on with this. And this is why I can't imagine trying to figure this out in in a glance in a shelter, Mm. right? This is the the skill that you guys must sort of have. Because most people would say Valerie's not social. But the issue that she has, and it's the reason she doesn't play with other dogs, is she's so dominant but isn't Mm -hmm. physically capable Right. So mm. she is, she's like extremely powerful dog in her head, but is not mm-hmm. in her body and therefore can't mm-hmm. risk playing because if she loses, she loses the persona that she's created. So it's funny because she won't play with my Mally. He 
constantly every day tries to engage her with play. And I think, mate, it's he just turned four. I'm like, it's been four years. She is never gonna play with you, right? Play with you. It's well, it because sounds to me like you have a very sensible dog. Well, that's it, right? Because she knows I'll lose control of this situation because you mm-hmm. are so much more powerful than me, and you're such a knucklehead, which he is. He bounces all over the place and causes such such problems that she's mm-hmm. like, I can't do that. Like because it will expose that I am not physically more capable than you, and then that will change our relationship. That's what I think's happening because the dog she does play with, she more flirts than plays. Like she's got a mm-hmm. particular type, but puppies mm-hmm. and younger dogs, she loves. She she's whatever a, she mm-hmm. can manage. Yeah, exactly mm-hmm. right. But as soon as a dog reaches a certain size slash maturity level, she's like, nope, our day's done. We can't play mm-hmm. anymore because you might beat me in our simulated fight. You might beat me in our simulation. And then you'll realize that if it were a real fight, you could beat me. And I can't have you thinking that. I need you to know that I'm so tough, right? And it's taken me years to understand that about her. <laughs> well, if you imagine that your dog ended up in a shelter and she was brought out into a play group and there were a bunch of, you know, young kind of rough and rowdy players that were in that group and she was introduced because nobody looked like there was any angst mm. and they went banging into her and she overcorrected, mm-hmm. right? Ah, get away from me. Sadly, a lot of times, and let's say if a fight broke out because she was trying to create distance and mm-hmm. appropriately, but they didn't have the skills to respond well to her. Sadly, that's where all these misunderstandings come in. So yeah. any aggression is like, oh, they're no good and they're not social, but that's not what her labels should have been about. Right? That's right. That's where um, I'm going with it, right? She would be really easy dog to diagnose as aggressive if you put yeah, her in a, yeah. in a situation mm-hmm. that right. would, would bring that out. And she's anything but that, right? She's the most loving, right. adorable little creature. And, and, and I use her to fix aggressive dogs, you know, to help mm-hmm. manage and rehab aggressive dogs. Stress and aggression are very quick to be called on in these days. Like a lot mm-hmm. of people look at dogs and they say, oh, stress, aggression straight away. And I, I'm thinking, well, that's a very quick call to make on on a five-minute observation for somebody who, mm-hmm. you know, generally isn't all that skilled in looking at dog behavior. And I, I find that happens a lot more with young trainers that come in. They look at a situation and say, oh, you can see the dog's clearly stressed or it's clearly aggressive dog. And I'll say, well, sometimes the dog is just uncertain of the situation, just hasn't had time to warm up and feel itself in the environment. I mean, we can speak with this with with a certain degree of authority because we run, we're one of the largest boarding kennel providers in Australia and we're constantly around dogs watching them. I mean, some of the girls that work for me that have been with me for many years, they're some of the best dog handlers I've ever seen in my life mm-hmm. because they are matching, that's their job 24 hours, not 24 hours a yep. day, but you know, like all the time that they're here, my full-time staff, they are absolutely amazing at it. They've made calls mm-hmm. that I, you know, like I've gone in and made a snap judgment on them and thought, oh, I'm not comfortable with this. And they're going, hang on, Glenn. And I'll say, yep. And I'm all ears because I know that they're better at it than, than I am. They're around it more and, you know, they're the authority in that situation. So I say, all right, elevator pitch me. Tell me why. And I'll go this, this, and this. And I'll go, good points. Okay, I see your point. And I'll sit back and watch them do the interactions when they're pairing the dogs in the kennels together. And sure enough, it pays off. They're right. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of times where I see people who are in positions like I am, where I've been around dogs for a long time. I've been involved in training and behavior for a long time. But the one thing that I've been learning to do and trying to be better at is controlling my ego in the situations where there are other people that aren't 
Like they're constantly coddling and micromanaging and getting in the way and trying to be relevant and saying to people, no, no, you don't know. I'm the authority. I'm the I'm the smartest person in the room. Well, I don't do any justice for my staff and nor do other people in that situation where they get in the way of people who really do understand their job and their role and how dogs are interacting and making good decisions about their behavior and the way that the dogs are socializing together. So sometimes I think you've just got to, you know, sit down and shut the fuck up. And, you know, like I said, use your eyes and your ears a bit more than your mouth. Mm -hmm. I got to tell you too, um, one thing that we talk about when we're teaching these seminars. So we're talking about this in my field. It cannot be that, well, some people are just naturally good at it and some aren't. Mm. We have to have a way of teaching from if you are naturally good at it, how do I teach someone who's not naturally good at it how to systematically start to implement a playgroup program Mm. in a shelter with 200 dogs on the ground, right? And that's what became a bit of a challenge. But one of the things that we, when we're teaching these seminars, we talk to people about is that confidence is subtle and insecurity is exaggerated. Mm. So back to your point with regards to, and that goes for human beings, that goes for dogs, that goes for every time you see these exaggerated displays, um, you know, take a look around and just give it some time. And with practice and skill, you know, you'll see those displays start to change when you see healthy interactions occur. But same thing with our handlers, you know, when they're out, can you imagine if you're attending, well, you both provide seminars, but imagine going to a playgroup seminar right? And then all of a sudden you're going to go into the yard after watching a three hour classroom presentation that is packed with so much stuff. Like you think your head's going to explode. And then you're up to go in the playgroup and we're going to start bringing out dogs from the kennels that have all these labels all over them. Can you imagine how, how scary that must be for these guys? And, you know, we always tell them like, you're going to be herky jerky in the beginning. Dogs are going to be herky jerky in the beginning. Our staff always does the, we call it the startup which is always trickier because the dogs sometimes are really pent up and have had negative associations, bad experiences, all kinds of stuff. So we, and then we can demonstrate our handling through all the things that we just talked to you about in the classroom presentation. So Mm -hmm. we rotate the population ourselves. Our handlers do that first. And then we immediately go into coaching the, the staff. And then it is true though, with regards to dog dog stuff is that we do help shelters identify some people are naturally better at it. So just because you have a director of your training and behavior program, they might actually be terrible at it. And you might have a kennel attendant or a volunteer that has got it. And so this, you have to support and empower the people that enjoy it and like it. You cannot make people do play groups. If you mm. force someone to go out into a, you know that Glenn, when you're hiring people for your Absolutely. staff, they've got to be into it. You mm. cannot make them go out and do that. Well, it'll mm. be a shit show. Absolutely. <laughs> if you do that, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's got to be a passion. It's got to be a real genuine love and want to do it. Like, you know, there have been people that are, that I've seen who just want a job. You know, they're just looking for a job. And yeah. they really they like dogs. <laughs> they like dogs, yeah. And and they usually don't get past the gate. And I'm the gate in most situations. And we talked, I think we talked about this a while ago where we thought that it was a good idea to bring business people in to run boarding kennels. And it's not, it never is. It doesn't, you know, like the customers identified, this isn't a real person for this industry. This is a business person doing business. The person that you need running a resort is kind of a unicorn person because they really need to have a business idea, which you can coach Mm -hmm. people in, but you can't teach somebody who doesn't understand animals, how to understand animals where you can Mm -hmm. teach someone who does understand animals, you can teach them to do business, Mm -hmm. you know, like limited business. I mean, it doesn't mean that they're going to be amazing in it, but the main criteria is that they have 
a read on animals, you know, dogs and mm-hmm. cats in our environments. That And because you can't fake that to people who come in and say, oh, I don't feel comfortable with this person. They're not talking the language and they don't feel, you know, mm-hmm. they don't ex- exude the love and the compassion that's really needed for this industry mm-hmm. and for my dog or my cat. So yeah. that's one, one of the criteria that we really have a real hold on. And I think back to, you know, we were talking before about context, running professional daycare environments is a completely different, like I would never suggest to you that you should take our playgroup manual for shelter dogs and apply it or overlay it over your professional doggy daycare board and train business. Mm. It is a completely different context. Mm. Well, I mean, the, the biggest difference is that the dogs in the shelter, no one owns them and is going to be picking them up at the end of the night. Yeah. And, you know, this might be the difference of life or death for them. As opposed to, you know, if I was running a doggy daycare, I would say, no, things have to be actually a whole nother level of controlled than Agreed. what I'm looking for in the um, exercise of a playgroup for shelter dogs. Like this is their chance, you know, it's different. It's different. So, Amy, let me go a step back and sort of talk about how did you scale this? Because so you worked in the one shelter that you said was like a thousand dogs a year and that was your proof of concept. Yes, this works. Here's the evidence. You've gone to another mm-hmm. one many, many more dogs, four and a half thousand a year. You've increased the stats that place as you did similarly in the other. It's not a fluke. Here it is. Like I can prove it, right? Like I've done it two places. How did that become scalable where, Mm. uh, because you did that at both, right? Like, so that was you and and your own team or? Well, no, no, no. So it was very interesting. When I showed up at Southampton, it was just me. And then when I moved out to California, I mean, Colorado, excuse me, I did live in California, but now Colorado, I did come out with my dear friend, Pam Pierce, who now runs the National Spay Alliance. So she does, she takes body parts for all the right reasons across the country. (laughs) No, in Georgia, she's in Georgia now, but she came on board with me to kind of get this thing up and running in Longmont. And what I have to say about that shelter is that they had a phenomenal volunteer program that was being run by Sarah Klesman. You gentlemen met Sarah at IACP that year. She Mm -hmm. was working with us at that time. She's working for DPFL at that time. She had the best volunteer program. It was so buttoned up. Those volunteers were coordinated, scheduled. If they missed a shift, she would call them and say, hey, we missed you today. Can you let us know if this time's not going to work for you because we need, we're counting on you. Like she had this amazing ability to really make the volunteers feel empowered and valued, but then also help them. They were accountable. So Mm. they were really functioning for that shelter. So I got to come in, that was like a greased wheel, Mm -hmm. right? But it was really funny when I showed up and said, we're going to be throwing all the dogs out together. And, and at that time also I was doing basic training and I was balanced. And my motto is I use all tools and techniques to support animals to rewardable behavior. Mm -hmm. That's my motto. And in that day, the same thing. And they were, she was, had more of a, a positive reinforcement exposure. And so it was like, you know, you and the lady with the money behind you coming in, you're not going to get all that done with our dogs. But, you know, obviously it worked and the dogs were happier and everything was more efficient. It just worked. Right. Mm -hmm. So I can't say that that was by myself there because then I had an amazing uh, core of volunteers and then the staff built up and then we built a behavior department there. I didn't, I ended up building a behavior department at Southampton and ended up with staff there and then did the same thing, started from the ground up, built a behavior department at the Longmont Humane Society. And then I kind of, they were running that. And then I started going and hitting the road and teaching the seminars. Right. And then in 2015, 15 is when I cut ties. So I was working for this woman, by this way, this woman was donating me this whole time. Wow. I was being paid by her, not by these shelters from 1998 to 2015. And 
I, I don't know if it was the bravest or the stupidest thing that I've ever done, but I, I called her one day and said, you know, I, I don't think you, you don't have to carry this anymore. I, we've got this. I'm going to go start a nonprofit. My husband helped me get, I would not have been able to do that. He helped me get the nonprofit started. And then, um, I cut, I went off her payroll and figured we're doing this thing. And, um, my son and I did 70 shelters the first year wow. ourselves. Wow. And then we started adding, we started adding staff and it just, now I think we have 23 staff. We visited almost 300. I mean, it's been rock and rolling. And then we were donated the canine center in Florida, which is a whole, whole another thing. That's that's just advanced. Those are the dogs that are really at the end. It's us or sanctuary or euthanasia. Right. And so we're, when everybody said there's nothing more we can do for these dogs, we're one more level of advanced training and behavior work, which I've never competed. I don't have, that's why I admire you two gentlemen. Ivan Balabanov has been incredibly gracious with us because he's two and a half hours away and he's donated a tremendous amount of his time. We're not learning from Ivan because I'm going to go compete. I'm trying to learn from people who are the best of the best so that hopefully a dog doesn't fall through the cracks. Like I have some concept about advanced training Mm -hmm. so that I can apply it and possibly save your life. That's a whole nother level, but that, anyway, it's a whole nother level. So you just casually dropped that you did 70 Mm. seminars at shelters in one year. My son and I. My son started with me when he was 19. He finished his high school on um, a work-study credit. So how the fuck does that happen? <laughs> like it was because it was so it was so needed. It just people wanted to see the dogs play. And it is amazing. There's a lot of naysayers, don't get me wrong. And I want to tell you guys, we've been invited to Australia, uninvited, invited, uninvited, invited, uninvited. And you know what it's about? Because I use aversives. Yeah, you're a balanced trainer. Yeah. I was just about waiting. Well, well right look, now it's yeah. because you're a stinky American that isn't allowed in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> isn't allowed in with your coronavirus. <laughs> I got COVID cooties. Yeah. I was no. just about to casually find a drop line at some stage because that was part of our conversation that you and I had. It was during one of the podcasts and we were talking about the use of tools and you messaged me and said, I just want to thank you so much for talking about these tools. But Amy... We want to thank people like you who haven't shied away from the use of tools. I've been an advocate for tools for so many years. For 30 years, I've been selling, fitting prong collars. I probably fit, you know, I would say close to about between two and 3,000 dogs up with prong collars. Um, we were selling them before most people even knew what they were. The one thing that really bakes my noodle or grinds my gears is that for all the people that have had such a wonderful outcome with them, and swear by them and think they're the best thing since sliced bread. They never get a mention in any of the stories, but the one or two people who have a bad reaction to it, they make headline news. And the Mm -hmm. thing that disappoints me, it seems to be not just an Australian thing, but fundamentally what we see in Australia is the, the headline news issue is what people really draw down on. And that's their experience with some of these tools, i.e. Mm-hmm. things like prong collars and so forth, because they look so awful and, you know, the design mm-hmm. of them looks hideous. But the function of them is absolutely amazing. It's life-changing and has really turned the corner of so many of these dogs for people. I've seen so many people throughout my career, and I'm sure you have, and I know Pat's probably seen people that he can speak of as well. You know, people have been in tears. They've just said to me, I thought this was the end of the road for my dog. I thought that, you know, like people were saying to me, you're not strong enough to handle this dog. You can't do anything with this dog. This dog is untrainable. 
and yet they're turning up with a dog walking passively on the lead, enjoying their company, you know, and then you have these audacious people saying the only reason that dog's now controllable is because it's in fear that if it does anything wrong, it's going to be in pain. And I said, you, sir, you don't get it. Like you simply don't get it. You are part of the problem. You're the reason why so many dogs are being destroyed that have so many opportunities available to them. And when I know people well, like you're out there, that really fills my heart, I'm, honestly. Well, thank you. And I that's why I did message you about that because specifically, I know all dog training professionals are faced with this debate, dilemma, thorn in their side or whatever, no matter what side you're on it, uh, yep. no matter what side you're on, right? Because if you're on the positive only side, you're tortured by the fact that there are those of us that will not adhere to your ethics, right? I mean, it's, I, people lose sleep. It's painful. It's painful for everybody all the way around to be this at odds with one another. Mm. But I think that um, what's really kills me in my field, I've got, I've got a bunch of academics that are breathing because you know, the bigger you are, the harder you fall. Right. So now DPFL, when I was by myself building these programs, nobody gave shit who I was right now. DPFL is a big enough name in animal welfare that, you know, the, the naysayers and the people that are just really looking to bring us down, they're coming out of the woodwork now. Mm. And what's a killer to me, a lot of them ha- are academics. They got a lot of letters after their name. They cannot demonstrate any model that will even come close. And we are very measured and we've got all the data behind what we've done. I didn't talk about the canine center for two years until I had some numbers that I could say, okay, what we're doing is successful because I don't compete, but measurement is how I'm held accountable for what mm. I'm doing. And it's not just my opinion. Right. And if you talk about the ultimate count competition, how many live or die. Right. Mm. And so it makes me insane that I've got academics that are trying to shut us down because we use squirt bottles, shake cans. I'm not talking about pinch collars or remote collars or anything in our playgroup, just our basic enrichment programming. They want to shut down because we use squirt bottles and shake cans, um, air blast and air horns for altercations and interruption tools mm-hmm. when they're needed. It's, it's insane. And that, then, you know what I deal with at the canine center when I'm trying to do the advanced training and behavior for dogs that are at risk of euthanasia for behavior problems, you know, and the fact that I use all tools and techniques. So, you know what we would go through with that. Right. I think that is the place to draw the line, right? Because we, you know, we, you know, we have force free people on the show and we, we get along really amicably, but mm. those people are, usually competitors. And so the mm-hmm. difference between f- like failure because your unwillingness to use a particular thing on a dog just means you didn't, don't get the ribbon on that day. No big deal. Right. Like yep. it's at the end of the day, a dog goes, I'm happy. And the truth is those people are exceptional trainers and some of them do that for setting themselves a higher challenge. And that's cool. I think mm. that's amazing. Like you say, Hey, like, you know, especially you get people in IGP who say like, all right, I want to try and win with no aversives and that's the goal I'm setting for myself and no problem. And if they don't, it's just like, Oh, we'll we try again next year. No big deal. Right. Mm-hmm. And I have total respect for those people. I really enjoy them. I enjoy their company. I enjoy the conversations to have with them, but it's the death before discomfort people who can go fuck themselves. Right. Like, cause that is, yeah, that's, that's where it's just madness. Yeah. And, and, mm-hmm. and like I have one of the earliest clients that I ever put a prong collar on was a very, like an older woman, very, very small. And she had a very powerful dog. Right. And there was actually no behavioral issues with the dog. The dog was great. Just pulling her. Well, yeah. So we, she was, we were doing obedience and the dog was getting really good. And you know, I liked the dog and I was playing with the dog a lot and 
just because of my size, I could play tug better with the dog in a way that it liked more than she could, although she could play well, but just, you know, physically wasn't as powerful and capable. Anyway, one day, like three or four sessions into it, dog saw me on the other side of the street and just dragged her to me, right? Like there mm-hmm. was, and there was like, she was feet planted, like doing mm-hmm. everything she could on that flat collar to stop the dog. There was no behavioral problems with the dog. Like mm-hmm. the dog was great. The dog's a fantastic dog, really well trained. But mm-hmm. when the motivational math didn't add up because he saw me and was like, oh, I just want to get to that guy and I get him, I get my access to him is so irregular and I see you every day. I'm going to him. And, and there was nowhere to stop him. And I said, I said at the time, I said, oh my God. Like, and luckily at that time it was her street, right? So it was like her back street. It wasn't like through traffic, but had it been the there would have been absolutely no way to stop. And I said, oh my God, we're going to have to put a prong call on this dog. And she in her community became a pariah, like was mm. basically hounded out of it because she was using this prong collar on the dog. And like I say, it's not like it was, we weren't even like, it was just to stop the dog from dragging her through traffic, keeping her and the dog alive. And it mm-hmm. was, you know, she lost access to a big part of her community. Yeah. You know, she was kicked out and really was, Treated very, very badly. Disgusting. Yeah. And, and it was, well, is a real eye opener because I was thinking, you know, I have nothing against force free community. In fact, I have, we have much to learn from them. Of course. But the idea that we should just let dogs die instead of, you know, endure a bit of discomfort to learn a lesson that they'll stick with them for life. It's madness. It like is literal so, madness. And the thing to me is that it's not, there would be chaos in the universe the natural world does not function this way. Mm. This is a human construction. Like, so even if you go back to the fact that I, I had the privilege of working with marine mammals in the beginning, but they were basically kenneled, right? They lived in a tank. There was complete control of their environment and their access to resources, mm-hmm. right? So human beings have, have taken this, these discoveries and have basically created the ability to force other living beings to do whatever the heck we want with this, all this operant conditioning stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to do it through positive reinforcement only, you usually have to have some control of the environment and their access to resources. And why is it that we think that that's so incredibly humane? And if, even if you look at the studies and and when all those discoveries were made, I mean, that was some cruel shit that went down in those labs when that stuff was happening, you know, like, thank God we learned the things that we learned, but it is actually kind of pretty sick and twisted. Yeah. It comes at a cost. Yeah. We should be able to mentally manipulate other species and ourselves into doing what we want, but we cannot follow some kind of natural or, you know, order of things that, oh, I touched a hot stove. I won't do that again. Mm. I mean, why do we think that just the occurrence of learning is not so valued. It just doesn't, it doesn't actually make any logical sense, but that's what's really hard nowadays. There are so many academics that, that will claim that somebody like me is uneducated, stupid, or I'm just actually a self-reinforced punisher. Mm. That's why I do what I do because it's self-reinforcing to me mm, that's- to use an interruption tool in playgroups because somehow I go home like I had an orgasm in playgroups or something because I, I got to shake a shake hand at a dog. That is one of the ones that really upsets me is mm. the idea that punishment is reinforcing to the punisher. And they mm-hmm. use that a lot as a justification mm-hmm. for why you do it. You're stuck in a behavioral loop and it's like, hey, yeah, but I also, what is reinforcing is saving that dog's life. Mm. Like that's actually highly reinforcing to me. But They're then just- also coming from horses. I mean, I worked with horses forever and sure. I would pat my horses and we all loved giving our horses carrots. But the day that a positive only trained horse makes it to the Olympics, 
I'll shut my mouth. Mm. It's going to happen. Or wins a PSA national or Mondio or IGP or anything In like that. Training, yeah. You know, like challenge accepted, guys. Like show us how it's done. Pave the way. Don't just bring the unicorn dog out. Like bring them all out and show us how it's done. We're not angry with these people. We're not resentful towards them. We have learned things. It certainly made me a better trainer on paying more attention to positive methods and so forth and having a positive first approach to dogs. That's been something that I think many of us have learned from and it's set new standards and guidelines. And I remember Chad Mackin saying once in a in an interview that they've held us accountable and they've made us be a little bit more honest with ourselves and a bit more, yes. have a bit more credence when we're actually training dogs. But yeah, Pat's right. Some of these people really do need to go fuck themselves because they will, I wouldn't say happily. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be audacious enough to use the word happily, but they will allow so many thousands and thousands of dogs to go to their death or be stupidly medicated when you can simply change the whole architecture of that dog's life. I remember a lady once sent me a prong collar back in the mail once and there was no note with it. I thought she must be really disappointed with the prong collar because I remember the dog. I remember her. I remember fitting it up to her. And I remember at the time that she was really happy with the lesson and she said, oh, this is amazing. But like most people at the start, you know, it was like I could see her eyes dilate and when she saw the look of the collar and, you know, I, I spoke about my own first experience, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I got the collar back and I thought I'm going to ring her up. I need to find out what's actually going on here. So I rang her and she said to me, look, I'm sorry, I actually meant to send a note with the collar. I actually forgot it was a bit absent-minded of me. And she said, so I'm so happy you called me. She said, I'm actually giving the collar back because she said, I don't need it anymore. It's transformed my dog's life. And she said, I just want to give it back to you so you can donate this one to somebody else in need who can't afford one. And I mean, Mm -hmm. that choked me up a little bit. And I kind of thought Mm -hmm. that is absolutely amazing. And this is the, you know, I was out teaching students the other day in all my career, in all the time that I've been using prong collars, not once in all the people I have fitted has one person ever come back to me and said, it's because of you that, you know, you broke down the relationship with my dog. It's because of you that you cause pain and undue suffering with my dog. It's because of you that my dog has holes in its neck or anything. Never, ever, ever. Like if I started to see a relationship with that happening and a string in that behavior going on, I'd say, you know what? There's no way I'm going to endorse this product. It's been the absolute polar opposite. Not one, not one person in 30 years or let, let me be real, 28 years since a guy called Adrian Tyler in Melbourne showed them to me from a guy called Pat O'Connor from Ray Allen. He brought the first one out that I ever saw. And I had the same reaction. I was, I was mortified. I thought it was the most hideous looking thing that I've ever seen. And he said, mate, Just open your mind, you know, like he said, I wouldn't show you this. Or he said, I'm a dog lover. I I love dogs. He said, I wouldn't recommend this to you. He said, but your dog's pulling all over the place. He said, we can fix this today. He said, you know, not permanently, but he said, we can significantly improve things today if you trust me. And I did. And it changed my life. And and now I've had, um, because of him, because of his presence and his ability to allow me to open my mind. I've been able to open my mind and share my experience with so many other people. I'm glad you're doing it too, Amy. Well, I mean, that was the point that I reached out to you is your podcast about just because you don't understand something. Yeah. I think what's so hard is that, and I don't want to, and thank you for toning me down because I do have resentment sometimes, admittedly, but I am with you both and that I employ and want to be an expert in all of the techniques, protocols, science, application of the science 
that everybody in the positive community, we do all of that and are into all of that. Mm. And so there's nothing that I am saying is bad about positive reinforcement training at all. What I'm just saying is that if an animal is not learning what they need to learn from the approach that you're taking, be creative enough to be able to alter your approach and try something else. And I just think it has to be effective. I've heard you guys talk about that forever. And it's just very hard. Animal welfare is really emotionally draining work. You know, it's Mm -hmm. hard to go into the animals. You know, I've got these young kids that are working with me and we, at the canine center, we've been successful with 80, 87% of the dogs that have come through. I was hoping for a 50% mark, but these are dogs. When Jay came down to help us, I had a population of dogs what he said to me is that, you know, people call me all the time and say, oh, I've got this badass dog. And, and I had a population that was sent to me from Canada. And I said, listen, I saw him at IACP. And I said, in the past, when I've had dogs like this, and I want to do drive expression work to get, let them get their yayas and then get that cooperative under control. I'm trying to go down with these, this path of these dogs and I can't put them into drive because we can't get them out. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, it was, like, whoa, this is like a whole other ball game. And they were a mess in all, a lot of other ways, too. I felt like all of their general processing was just so messed up. And so he came down and showed us how to get be able to work through those issues through play. Mm. And really, how, and Jay, you know, is a really positive guy in his handling and everything, too. So I'm all for 100%. We always want to go that route. I just, I think that I went off on a tangent just then. I just, it's really hard for me when we are demonstrating we are measured nobody comes close to serving the number of unowned dogs that we do nobody that i know i mean if you know somebody like i will stand corrected and it's really hard to have people actively trying to you know put us out of business based upon an idealism or a preference Mm. and um, i don't want to i don't want to like belabor the positive only or not discussion that's not where i really meant to go other than i circled back around to you guys thanking you for bringing that up if just because you don't understand something. And thank you for giving us an opportunity to talk about the work that we're doing, because I do think working with shelter dogs, it's made me a much better trainer, even though I was privileged to marine mammals and exotics and everything, working with dogs in adverse conditions without being able to rely upon relationship, because that's a big thing for us. It took me a while to figure this out. I'm like, why are things not working? And even though we're building relationship every single time we're interacting with the dogs, I'm telling my team all the time, don't rely upon your relationship to be the thing that is changing their behavior. Because remember, we've got to hand them off to somebody Mm. else. We might not even know to whom they're going, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have to actually really kind of teach them some clinical stuff that we hope is going to generalize. And while we're still trying to work them in a kennel, our kennel is pretty freaking amazing, but we're very privileged to have been donated that property for this purpose. But the context is a little bit different. We're just trying hard to help as many as we can come out on the other side and be not so not suffering so much even in the process. Right. So sometimes it's like, Oh, I wish these people could just freaking stop being such keyboard gladiators sometimes. And I've even, my kennel is 18, one side, 18, the other. I've even thought about, okay, I would love to give someone those 18 kennels. You've got 30 days. You get this many people, those 18 kennels, 30 days go and do it whatever way. And if you can outperform me in the end, I'll hand the whole place over to you. I mean, it'd be like, show me, just mm. show me. Mm. Problem is they never take up on that off though. That's, that's the issue. So let's break the cycle a little bit. Talk about the facility in Florida. So you guys as like dogs playing for life is a big organization. Now you say, what do you got? 24 employees? Is it? 20, I think 23 employees now. Yeah. 
And so you're still all over the country in the US running uh, seminars for shelters, teaching them how to like implement play groups to make dogs more adoptable and just sort of biologically fulfill the dogs a little bit. What is happening in Florida? What, what happens there? So literally in August of 2017, we were donated hundred percent donated this property. It was a turnkey. It was an adoption center, but in a community that didn't need that big, big and glorious of an adoption center, we're in North central Florida mm-hmm. and uh, we've got, 13 acres fenced in. We've got a big yard called a free roam yard. We've got multiple yards for drive expression work. We've, the kennels are very nice for a kennel facility. We've got huge play yards on top of that. So we've just got this beautiful facility where we take in dogs, the only unowned dogs. We don't work with privately owned dogs, but we're for unowned dogs that are at risk of euthanasia for behavior reasons. So shelters from around the country send us, send us dogs. And we do not have any sponsorship for that facility. So it is a, it's a fee for service. It's like a board and train, just like you guys would operate, but it's just for dogs that don't have owners. Right. And so shelters are raising money and we're raising money. Obviously we're working on trying to do that, but we don't have any sponsors yet for the canine center, but that's what we do. We work with dogs that are, it's us or euthanasia. And there's some dogs that we've recommended for sanctuary for the sanctuaries that we know will give them an excellent, the one sanctuary, the best friends animal society in Utah. We've, we've, been able to get a few dogs in for them, but that's very hard to get dogs to them. And the only time that I will recommend dogs for sanctuary is if I feel like either their bite history or something's happened where I don't think it's responsible to rehome them. Okay. But I know that they could have an excellent quality of life and their caretakers will be able to enjoy them as we were able to enjoy them. Like this dog just does not need to die, but unfortunately they're boxed in. Mm-hmm. And then some dogs we have determined no, no way is this dog a placeable dog. And then so what 87% made it have made it out from our place positively. Cool. What would determine that for you? Because you've got some pretty extreme dogs there, right? Like, mm. so dogs with severe bite histories that you're willing to work with, what is it that makes you cross the line and go, nah, like this one is either not worth the effort or this one we cannot help. Well, you know what? You just reminded me that I didn't finish my story about J-Jack when he, when I told him about that original population of dogs, mm-hmm. he said, most people call me and say, I've got a tough dog. I see them. And he just starts to do his play stuff. He said, you've got a kennel of the one percenters. Mm-hmm. Like this is, you've got 27 dogs here that are like the real deal. But I don't take in, I don't want to misrepresent. I won't take in any dog with any history. We review their histories and there's some, if there are sustained attacks, if it's offensively aggressive to people, we always separate defensive aggression from offensive aggression. Okay. That's kind of a threshold for me. If I truly think a dog is offensively aggressive to people, I'm not working to try to rehome that dog as a pet dog. There's a lot of dogs that have come in that are super gnarly that I'm really proud that we're starting to get really good working dog placements for them. And so what I'm hoping eventually is the working dog groups that are going into shelters to that aren't purchasing dogs, but you know that's a trend now. A lot of places are rescuing dogs. I'd like them to start coming to us first, knowing that we're almost front-loading the dogs for, we've got a couple of arson detection dogs, a couple of regular scent detection dogs, narcotics detection dogs. And one dog went for couple of therapy dogs, not working dogs at the level that we're talking about. But mm. anyway, I digress. So I we do have, yeah, we do have a, a lot of listeners in that sort of department. So these are dogs that would just be unsuitable in a home because of drive level or something like that. Yeah. Or, and, yeah. and you, you have people contact you and say, Hey, I'm looking for a new detection prospect. What have you got? Mm-hmm. I think we've placed 
either six or seven so far working dogs and they're all doing great. And you're open to individuals or agencies contacting you and saying, hey, I'm in the market for a dog. Can I come and test your dogs? And then they're purchasing from you. Is that like how it rolls? That's how you're keeping the doors open or you just give them away? Dogs are free. I'm just trying to find them a home. I just want them to go out alive. And, And when they're that talented, I want them to go do something special. I'm about to go to Florida to deliver Zoe to the throwaway dogs program in Virginia because she's been selected to be an arson detection dog. And I was holding out for Ivan fell in love with this dog. I have a video of him turning around and he'd been playing with her. And I said, come on, Ivan, tell me you love this dog. And he turns around. And I said, I love her. I was like, oh, right. <laughs> the Ivan Balabanov says that, right? So Zoe is about to become an arson detection dog. I, we don't train them for that. We just do the, sure, sure. we get the prep training, mm. right? And then, and then they're, that's not my thing. That's not my they go to the programs that then can finish the training properly. That's not our expertise. Um, but that dog is going to do great things. The other dog that went through throwaway dogs, um, Hansel, he was the first Hansel. Arson, <laughs> <laughs> he was the first arson detection pit bull in the state of New Jersey. And he's, you know, he's all over the media in the United States. So that's, we're, we're proud about that. Okay. So you um, should be. Plenty of dogs. Pardon me? So you should be. Oh, thank you. I get excited about talking about that mm. stuff. And so, you know, I hate to generalize, but mm-hmm. I'm guessing a lot of those dogs in your shelter there have blocky heads, right? Yes. Yes. And so yeah. it seems to be sort of commonplace in rescues kind of everywhere around the world that that, that, that is mm-hmm. the most overbred and underwanted dog is mm-hmm. some sort of bulldog kind of mix, right? Like blocky headed mm-hmm. dogs. And that mm-hmm. comes with it a whole swagger of new challenges. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that your staff are very attuned to that. Do you ever get pointy-eared dogs in that then kind of throw a spanner in the mix? Like you might get a super aggressive shepherd or something like that. Does that ever turn up or is that? Sure. Sure. I mean, we've had all different kinds of breeds. And one of the shepherds that we worked with that we lost ultimately had to let him go was there was an instability in him. And he was never going to be a working dog. He was, I haven't actually met him too. We were just trying to get him to pet dog status and just to stabilize him. But we have, I mean, gosh, I can't tell you how many of our population, but we get all different kinds. But yes, we get a lot of blocky headed type dogs, mm-hmm. but we get, I think we've had one or two Malinois that have come through a bunch of American bulldogs, bunch of those, a couple of shepherds, and then the rest are all mixy. Right. Know, they can be yeah. pointy mixy or blocky mixy, you know, mm, yeah, all yeah. over the place. We went through a spate in Australia where Rottweilers were enemy of the nation at one stage and they were sort of on the shit list, but then it turns back to the blocky head dogs. One stage, even in Australia, there was a total ban on German Shepherds. So I think there was like right. a 20-year ban that you couldn't import or own a German Shepherd. So that got lifted, um, I think, around about the 1970s or something like that. Really? Yeah. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. There was, a, there was an issue with German Shepherds. When I sort of really got involved in professional training, and I do talk about this a lot to people that I'm working with too, Amy, is that when I first got into training, there was a shelter down the road from me. And when I went down there, it was run by two ladies and occasionally we'd take them a bag of food just to donate them a bag of food to feed the dogs. And the kennel was just a little average sort of kennel, but the two ladies down there, they had a bunch of volunteers down there and the kennel was half full of dogs, you know, and occasionally mm-hmm. every now and then they'd ring me up and saying, oh, you know, we've got this Rottweiler come in because I would take dogs on. We would rehabilitate them and then turn them into service dogs for law mm-hmm. enforcement or whatever we were doing at the time. And, uh, you know, I'd go down there and have a conversation with them. They'd show me through, you know, the selection of dogs they've got. And I'd be able to take a couple of them on because they'd have the right type of traits that we were looking for. 
And, you know, I'd go down there and have a cup of coffee and a cake with them and stuff like that. And, you know, I'd say, oh, how's it going down here? Oh, yeah, you know, really good, very manageable. Fast forward 15 years, they were inundated, inundated with dogs. Like I'm talking a, a little shelter that was run locally, you know, probably half full of dogs. 15 years later, absolutely inundated. Couldn't get you know, enough money. They were constantly struggling trying to get people to support them and bring food in to, to feed the dogs. It was just amazing how that changed and also the landscape that changed and the type of dogs that were coming in. It was distressing. It was distressing for them because they were they were basically drowning and all people around mm. them were doing was describing the water they were drowning in, which was really sad to see. Right. You know, and I mean, right. we um, when I say we, I'm talking about me and, and other people in the environment. We're trying to help them as much as we could. But, you know, they were just so underfunded and so defeated all the time. And, and they were facing the same sort of hurdles that you were facing. They had a lot of people telling them how to run their business or, or, or suggesting what they should do, but none of them would reach into their pockets or none of them would actually mm-hmm. come down and get off their ass and actually get down there and clean kennels with them or walk dogs mm-hmm. or anything like that, which, you know, I, I really find quite sad. So again, you know, com- paying a compliment to you and people like you and your staff and the people that are out there, you know, actually hands on with these dogs. I've got nothing but pure respect for you guys because it can be, a very distressing job. It can be very rewarding, but it can be very distressing when you're overwhelmed with such a large population of dogs that never seems to stop. You know, there's always just a mm-hmm. um, cascading sea of these dogs coming into the, the shelters all the time. So you have nothing but pure respect and love from me. Oh, well, thank you. And I do want to, if I may, just give a shout out, you know, like our the shelter programming that we do, we call it the Every Dog Every Day program, which mm. means every dog should have an opportunity to get out of kennel enrichment every day. Playgroups are a way for you to do that for a lot, but we're not insisting every dog goes to playgroup. Just get them out of the kennel every day. Make sure of that. And that level of enrichment programming and us going around and us building the teams and being able to serve more shelters is thanks to there. We have major sponsors on that side. The Animal Farm Foundation was one of our original funders and has been with us along the way. That's a pit bull advocacy group in the United States. And then the ASPCA and the Petco Foundation came in big for us a couple of years ago, uh, three years ago, and gave us a tremendous grant uh, to provide our trainings to shelters, to open admission shelters, municipal shelters, and they just signed us back up again for another three years. So we do have very generous supporters on the enrichment programming that we provide to shelters. The Canine Center is separate completely. It's still under our DPFL umbrella, mm. but it's a, it's a separate entity, and we that that's where... We're, that's a different ballgame over there. But we have very, very generous supporters and for the basic programming. So the, the ASPCA being a big funder, they're mm-hmm. cool with the techniques and tools that you use. They're on board with all that? So their funding, again, is for the, the basic programming. So they're not funding the advanced training and behavior piece. They are supportive. I, I feel like they treat us as if we're peers. In the, in the United States, the ASPCA is the one of the national organization that actually invests the most in advanced training and behavior work for shelter animals. And they actually have the most expertise on their Dr. Pamela Reed, whom, you know, she's a hero of mine. She's with the ASPCA. She's been to our center and wrote us a glowing report. Pardon me? Love her book. One of the, Accelerated one of the, learning. I mean, everybody's got to read that book, yep, right? Agreed. And so Dr. Reed has been on site and said that what you were speaking to, she said, yep, I see all these tools in use. I do not see deteriorated relationship. I'm seeing well-trained, happy dogs. And the ASPCA has sent us some dogs that, um, which I really uh, admire that they felt like 
the dogs are actually would thrive with our programming. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm just saying that they're, to be fair, the advanced training and behavior work that we're doing is not necessarily what they're funding, right? right? But none of it would be alive without the generous support of those groups and, you know, the donors that we have and everything. But, but this advanced piece that got handed to me, right? When this facility got handed to you, how can you say no? Of course. And so it's just a whole nother level that we're trying to develop mm. and that we um, are trying to do well. That's really exciting. So, but you do take private donors, right? So like if, if someone's listening now sure. and goes like, I'm going to give those guys some money. They can do that. And they yeah, can and we have an awesome new website. It's Dogs Playing for Life, all spelled out. You can get to it with .org or .com. And the other thing that I'm really proud of, you know, with COVID, and we have not been able to do, we were shut down on seminars for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And so we took that opportunity to put together a learning library that you can access through the website. So a lot of our playgroup stuff, what we were talking about earlier, there's over six hours worth of, you know, little video clips with notes and instructions on them. And it's actually a really comprehensive learning library that we were able to put together that is available for free for people who want to learn more about the dog dog socialization. So we're really proud of that, being able to do that. That's and awesome. Yeah. So anyone around the world can get onto that now. And even though while we're all sort of separated from each other, they can educate themselves in your techniques, get that implemented. And when the world opens up again, maybe you can come out and oversee that implementation. Exactly. And we're also now doing webinars. I think like everybody, we just launched our first webinar series of it's the same playgroup presentation that we give if we're on the ground, but we're now giving it just cycling webinars and the, the attendance was, has been huge. So that seems to really be invigorating some groups too. And then some groups will feel like they can go give it a shot. And some groups will say, well, when you guys are on the ground again, we'd like you to come and and work with us. So Mm -hmm. We're really excited. I mean, it's a tough time for everybody, but just like everybody else, we've got to reinvent ourselves. We want to keep doing the work. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Hey, so before I wrap up, the last question I want to ask for you is you've been doing this a long time now. Like what sort of follow through do you see? So, you know, typically when we do seminars, we end up going the same place every year or second year or something like that. And have you had the experience yet where you've been to a shelter, you've educated the staff, and then you've been back there a period later, a number of years or whatever, and it's all new staff, you know, because these things change over, volunteers change, but they're doing what you taught however many years ago. Like, is that generational? Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. are you finding that that knowledge is being passed on within the shelters and then, or rather than, because, you know, sometimes you teach these events and people walk away and, you know, most as, as good teachers, we're motivational speakers and blah, blah, blah. And people walk away and Mm -hmm. they're like, fuck yeah, I'm going to do that. And then, you know, like the next day, like I'm kind of going to do it. And then the next day it's like, what was that thing again? (laughs) So we have that, Animal welfare is like compounded with all of that. And you're right. There's a lot of places that turn over, but I actually had everybody put together. Okay. Give me the latest and greatest so I can share it with them. So specifically to your point, 91% of the shelters that we've taught to run playgroups have continued the practice. Mm-hmm. 98% feel that playgroups result in better adoption matches. 99% feel that shelter dogs have a better quality of life because of playgroups. said that implementing playgroups improved the handling skills of their staff and volunteers. Nice. And then 85% said that implementing playgroups improved staff and volunteer morale. And that for shelters that have been running playgroups for at least a year, 33 decrease in the average canine length of stay, 33% decrease in length of stay, and a 7% average increase in save rate or live release rate. So those are the stats from shelters stuff. Nice. Yeah. And those numbers, because you said you did 70 in the first year, from how many shelters are those statistics drawn? 
I would have to follow up with you because this is, I Roughly. don't know how. So we have almost a 50% survey response rate, but that doesn't give me the number of how many of those shelters. I will get that number to you. Okay, cool. But I don't know it off the top of my head. Darn mm, it. That'd but be it's, awesome. we're probably pushing like a thousand, right? Like if you're doing 70 oh. in a year. No, no, no. We've only, no, that was our, my first year with just my son and I. And then we started building up the teams and then we were doing longer engagements. Right. So we're right now, we're at like 288 shelters that we've been on the ground for. Just okay, my cool. son and I just whipped out in the first year. And then wow. we we're like, and learning as we went, like, okay, let's slow down. Let's give them more time. Then the funding appeared mm-hmm. for me. It was almost like speed dating in the beginning. Like we came <laughs> rushing in, like it was good for us. Hope it was good for you. We're out, you know, yeah, <laughs> the next yeah. one. And then we've started to learn how to expand it. And yes, we do go back to shelters and the ASPCA and Petco have been really generous with allowing us to use our judgment. If we feel that it is, will have a great impact on life-saving because of the organization, we can circle back around and really massage that shelter again if they need more support. We're trying to get better and better at that. And strangely and kind of sadly, what we're learning is that whether it really sticks at a shelter or not, it really depends upon the individuals that are there. Mm-hmm. I hate that that's the answer because I can't do something to necessarily make that change Mm -hmm. other than just continuously trying to learn how to be better teachers so that even if we don't have the ideal people, we can still inspire and Mm -hmm. get them to get into it. Yeah. That's the biggest thing that we've noticed. It depends upon the people that are there. That's so important. And I think, you know, Mm -hmm. at the end of these events, when you teach anything, it's less important what people understood, but more important how you made them feel, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and if they feel Mm -hmm. like they can do it rather than go like, yeah, I know exactly how to do it, but I'm overwhelmed. It's better that people are like, yeah, I'm pretty good with it and I'm going to do it. Like I'm going to, I'm going to give it a crack. Mm. The dogs really do change people's minds. Like a lot of times, we notice in the presentations, it's a pretty hefty presentation because we kind of, if we just went out to demonstrate, I think people would get overwhelmed. We have to explain why we are going about it the way that we're going about it and kind of get them bought in and kind of prepared because it's pretty much because here we go. We're getting on the roller coaster. Here we go. There's, it's not somewhere you've got 200 dogs in that building and we are going to get those 200 dogs out over a course of days in the beginning, right? And people, sometimes they can't even wrap their brains around that. Like there's just no way we're going to get all of these dogs out. And for us, it's really the objective. So sometimes people are really tentative and they're a little bit afraid, but, and sometimes when we leave, you can see the insecurity, but we're really good. Like we tell people just, there's no way to do this perfectly so that you're never going to have a fight. So what we're going to do is prepare you um, to understand how to mitigate that situation as best as possible. And the bottom line is just like driving a car. You don't get better at driving a car by watching another video or you, you've got to do it. You've got to get out there and run those play groups. And you will be able to handle situations as they come and you're going to have to practice. And then you debrief and you learn what you need to learn from it. You figure out what mistakes did I make? How can I avoid that again? And then you shake it off and you get back in the saddle and you do your playgroups again. And you will get better and better as you go. Mm. Amazing. Amy, tell us how can people get in contact with you? Hit that website again. What's all the contact details? Info at D pfl.org. That's the way to get in contact about anything that interests you. The website is really proud of it. Thanks to nonprofits, the team there that's working with us. The website is dogs playing for life, all spelled out.org or.com either way. That's the way you can find us. And we have a ma- the manual for our playgroup manual is free to download online if you're interested in figuring it out that way. And now we've got that amazing learning library that the team put together. I didn't have 
much to do with that other than the original filming of it as we it was six years of playgroup seminars that they just went through that whole library and pulled out all the nuggets and put it together it's really good well hopefully there is a sugar mama or sugar daddy out there or several Mm -hmm. of them that will validate exactly what you're doing. Uh, we think it's a great program. I think it's absolutely wonderful what you're doing and it's very inspiring. I was very inspired when I saw you at St. Pete's Beach in Florida. thought it was just wonderful and I'm really glad that we got to make the time to have this conversation. If there's anybody who's out there in the audience or that can help or can donate or make life easier for what you guys are doing in your program, get on board. Oh, well, thank you. And definitely when you two can come stateside again, not only would I like to attend the uh, seminar that I missed of yours, Pat, but yeah. Glenn, both of you, we would love to have you at the Canine Center to teach and do a course for us and uh, open it up as an event. It's in a beautiful, a beautiful event center, and so we would be honored to host you anytime. Amazing. That'd be great. Yep. Done deal. Back to Florida. Yeah. Can't get away from that place. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Amy, thanks well, so much for your time. Honor. Oh, I know. It's our pleasure. It's, mm, it's Absolutely. Absolutely. And thanks for giving up your time. I appreciate everything that you do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the wrap up. Yep. That's it for another episode of The Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. You can do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. A couple bucks a month gets you extra episodes there, but, you know, you could just give as much as you like. Mm. Uh, the other thing you could do is get some cool merch, a fanny pack or even a- Beach a, towel or a some beach tapestry, <laughs> something, Who's buying a beach towel? <laughs> Where do you made that? Who's getting a tapestry of ours on their wall? Me. <laughs> Amy Amy's getting one <laughs> so yeah you could get yourself some something ridiculous we, yep. get, we get a couple of bucks for every yeah, we every do. every yeah. ridiculous it item the show it keeps it does. keeps the lights on that's right it mm. does every ridiculous item of ours that yep. you purchase and if you want to get in contact with us the best way to do that is if you want dog training advice group source that through the Facebook group uh, the Canon Paradigm discussion group mm-hmm if you want to talk to me or Glenn individually, do that. But if it's about the show, something we both need to see, please shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. As soon as we push stop on the recording, I'm going to laugh with Glenn about the email that we got overnight. <laughs> I can't wait to okay. talk. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to talk about it. Okay. All right. That's it. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>